So today's scripture comes from Exodus 32, uh, verses 1 through 9. Um, context, uh, Israel were slaves in Egypt for quite a while. That's how the book of Exodus begins. And uh, God places a call on Moses to go into Egypt to confront the most powerful man of the region to suggest he let all of his free labor go. And somehow it works. <laughs> Not without uh, a lot of hand-wringing and the hardening of hearts and uh, miraculous signs. But in the end, Israel is delivered from Egypt. Um, but they're now a people with no government, with no organization, with no structure, with no law. So they only know to be Egyptian because that's where they've lived their entire lives. And so... The giving of the law in the desert is in part to say you're not Pharaoh's people anymore. You're my people. We do things differently. We live differently. And they're going to know that you're my people by how we love and how we treat one another. And that's the giving of the law. And so we've got, we get the law. We get the Ten Commandments. Exodus 32 is taking place while Moses is getting the law from God up in the mountain. The rest of the Israelites are down like, where'd Moses go? Okay, the people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Come on, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, All right, take out the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He collected them and tied them up in a cloth. Then he made a metal image of a bull calf. And the people declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. Then Aaron announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. They got up early the next day and offered up entirely burnt offerings and brought well-being sacrifices. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to celebrate. The Lord spoke to Moses, hurry up, get down there. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt are ruining everything. <laughs> They've already made a metal bull calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it and declared, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people and I've seen how stubborn they are. All right. Um, I mean, you guys know me well enough to know. I mean, I, I, this isn't the first time I've talked about this passage. None of us are going to get off the hook here. Uh, like, I love to laugh at Israel, too. And it's the laughter at myself. Um, so the sermon series is titled Anti-Fragile Faith. The subtitle uh, today is The Golden Calf. So uh, the impetus for this sermon series had no, it did not start with the Bible or Christianity or anything. I was literally reading a book of economics because I'm weird. I, there's a lot of philosophy in it, and that's why it got recommended to me, but it's called uh, Black Swan. The author is Nassim Taleb. He also wrote the book after that called Anti-Fragile. And basically, Taleb's uh, looking at systems, political systems, economic systems, structures that are fragile, those that are resilient, those that are anti-fragile, and he says there are certain traits that are associated with each, fragile systems, resilient systems, and even better than resilience is anti-fragile systems, right? 
So as I was reading this, I got really interested and really thoughtful about fragile faith, resilient faith, and anti-fragile faith. So I want to talk a little bit about it. So, so here's the way these three categories work uh, in Taleb, in his writings, and I find them to be very helpful. So a fragile system means if you introduce chaos, if you introduce uh, a black swan event, which is like a negative, unpredictable kind of event, if you introduce instability, fragile systems break. Fragile individuals break, right? A resilient system, if you introduce chaos or randomness or black swan events, these things are able to endure, right? They, they survive, they last. But even better than that are anti-fragile systems. When you introduce conflict, chaos, unpredictability into anti-fragile systems, they actually get stronger from it, from that resistance, from those experiences, right? So I, I'm going to use this example from last week, probably every week, because uh, it, like, not everyone's here. So I want to get us on the same page, right? So like a cell phone, if I go outside with my cell phone and I drop it and it hits the concrete and it breaks, we say it's fragile, which is what would happen, right? You introduce some backlash to the phone in the form of like the laws of physics, it breaks. If I had a phone with a big enough, strong enough case or a, or a good enough design and I dropped it and it survived, we would say, oh, that's a resilient phone, right? But for the phone to be anti-fragile, it means when I drop it on the ground, suddenly two phones exist now, right? It, it, got, it got better. It grew from it, right? That's not how it usually works with cell phones. But there are examples in our world of anti-fragile systems. And in fact, nature is really good at creating them. So your immune system is anti-fragile. Your immune system doesn't just get through uh, bacteria getting introduced to the system. It creates antibodies that will actually help your immune system get stronger, right? Um, like I got COVID in July and my immune system against COVID now is actually stronger than before I had gotten it, right? I mean, I don't want to get it, but now that I've gotten it, my body has responded and it won't last forever, right? Uh, those antibodies will eventually wear off, but the immune system is an anti-fragile system, right? At least in most people. Um, there are some things that we want to make anti-fragile and we have a hard time doing it. I'm thinking about parenting. So I want my son to grow and to be strong and to be resilient and to have grit and to be able to like approach a world that is unpredictable, chaotic, and where he's going to experience pain. And I want him to be able to do that with love and grace and compassion. But here's the thing. If I keep him from experiencing failure, if I always interject and I don't let him experience negative emotion, if I protect him, I actually make him more fragile. I create a fragile person who's not ready for heartbreak and disappointment and the arbitrariness that life brings, right? So in my attempt to protect him, I make him more fragile. In my allowing him to experience failure, I think he'll respond by becoming more anti-fragile. So then I started thinking about my own life. Like, there are marriages, there are relationships that are fragile. 
any conflict and it destroys them. And this happens a lot in friendships, right? In today's world, one little disagreement, I'm, not, I'm ghosting you now, I blocked you on my social media, fragile relationship, right? Fragile marriages. But then you have like resilient marriages. Things happen, negative outcomes, financial difficulty, broken trust, and you like endure. But you endure, right? Like you don't really grow, you don't really soften, you don't really learn, you simply endure. That's not the goal, right? Resiliency in marriage can be good to get you through a tough time, but not if there isn't significant change. Not if there isn't growth. Not if, you're, not if you don't become closer together. And all of you know relationships where conflict was endured, but it never really healed and you never got stronger. That was all that happened. That's not the goal. The idea is that if we can make it through this, in the end, we'll have more intimacy. Our trust will, will grow that much more for each other. They don't know, I mean, for the, like, I think about Josh and Em and the, and the birth of Emerson, and I think about if you ask them if they thought that would ever make them stronger, they probably would have said no, and when I see them, I would say it has. That's anti-fragile, right? You didn't just endure. You've, you got softer. You got vulnerable. Like, you trusted each other. You had to rely on each other. That's what I want in my marriage. That's what I want in my relationships, that's what I want in my life. Like I'm trying to figure out how to get there. But it means something like me allowing for difficulty, heartache, unpredictable things to over time allow me to be soft and vulnerable, to let people in further, to rely more on those people I care about and love. That's how we end up building trust and getting stronger. That becomes an anti-fragile relationship, right? So what might this look like in terms of our faith, right? So last week we read a portion of the book of Job where Job gets uh, boils from head to toe and he's had some negative things happen to him that God's allowed. And Job's wife says, what are you doing bringing offerings? Curse God and die. <laughs> like, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, but but I, you, like, like you imagine things, when things get really down, I mean, I have some empathy for Job's wife, right? Like she's angry. Why aren't you angry, Job? Like, look what's happening to you. You're so faithful, and God doesn't seem to be rewarding you at all, right? Her faith is a fragile faith, though. When negative things came around, it was like, just abandon God, right? Like, get rid of that. I think about resilient faith, and I'm going to give you an example, because I, I think it can be not as healthy as we'd like it to be. I think of resilient faith, and I picture, like, some of the students I have who come, and no matter what's happened to them, no matter what they learn or read, no matter what ideas are presented, it's like they are just like, their faith is unshakable. It's like so resilient that nothing can penetrate. They're gonna hold on to it, but there's no growth. There's no, it's not really even a relationship because that would require like change, transformation, and right? All the kinds of stuff that I would consider to be part of an anti-fragile faith. I don't have to be scared of the question to read something, to engage. I don't have to just be resilient and endure all of my doubts about God, all of my questions about God. Like, it's, you're not just here to push those aside and, and endure. That's not a real relationship. Some of you are existing in that place in your faith, though, right? Like, you won't even let yourself engage some of the things that you might be learning and growing because you just, you, it's like you're just holding on. 
But I want to get to a place where I'm not afraid of the question. I'm not afraid to get angry with God. I'm not afraid to read that book or, or engage in that passage of Scripture because I don't want to just endure. I want to grow. I want, I want my trust in God to expand, not stay the same. Right? But that, that means allowing the black swan events of my life to, to challenge me, to allow for real faith transformation, not just being stagnant, which when I picture resilient, I picture like it's just, it's firm and it's unchanging. That's not what faith's about. And then you have someone like Job who can model that. Job goes through in, like horrible, horrible pain and trauma. And it's not like he's always happy with God. He asks God questions. He challenges God and all that. But by the end of the book, there's clearly a deeper connection to God, a trust in God, a faith in God. That's anti-fragile. That's what, we're, that's what we're after. But here we are in Scripture again, and we could think of a thousand examples like this of faith that's fragile, faith that may be anti-fragile. You have Israel. God has literally delivered them from the Egyptians through wonders and miracles. And Moses is gone for a while, and here they are building a calf, right? Like, what's going on here? Uh, in my mind, right, this is clearly an example of fragile faith. Like, we trusted you, Yahweh, sure. Then you gave us manna when we were hungry and, like, water from the rock. We, yeah, 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 yeah. What have you done for me lately? Oh, nothing? Now we're building a calf, right? So that, this is like fragile faith, the, the first bit of pushback, of difficulty, and they've already diverted their attention. Here's my, I have two congregational questions. This is your chance. You get to speak up. Um, what do you think might be motivating Israel in this quest to have uh, an, a God that will lead them now that Moses has been gone for a while? What, what drives them? So we have to speculate a little bit. Right, we have to like read into the text. What do you think might drive Israel to this decision to build a golden calf? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, there's a sense of like immediacy. We want it now. Um, when it doesn't happen now, there's, a, there's like impatience that sets in. And so there's a, yeah, I mean, I, I think the story indicates Israel is very much impatient. What has happened now? We're going to make it happen for ourselves. If you're not going to do it, God, we're going to make it happen. And they sort of go that direction. That's part of, I think, what's, what's motivating is like a deep impatience. What else? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. With their connection to God, and all of a sudden they're lost. They're looking for something, for God in something, and you know, they can't find it because Moses is gone, so they Yeah, oh, this is so good. So it, it's, it seems very reasonable for me to think Moses had a lot of interaction with God directly, Moses had a lot of transformation. But for Israel, most of it is about Moses, maybe even more than God. So now Moses, who is the person who we look to for our faith, is missing, and we don't know what to do. And this is common for a lot of people, right? 
it's this author, it's C.S. Lewis, it's this pastor, it's Joe Bankard, whatever. I'm not that, right? I can't, so like Israel needs its own connection with God, which they have not cultivated. I think that's at least plausible to think about when I read this story, right? They're lost without him because they don't have their own faith. Yeah, Marie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, and Susie mentioned freedom too, right? So you, there were slaves. Their, their days were dictated. Egypt told them what to do. All of a sudden, we're free. This is a beautiful thing, but it's almost like how much responsibility comes with that? How, now we, and so it's how do, they don't know how to deal with it yet. They haven't learned how to deal with this newfound autonomy, lack of structure. Yeah, TJ. Hmm. That's all they ever knew. And I think that, as what everybody said, off that, I think they've been used to being served no matter what, if it was just crumbs or whatever, but they had somebody delivering them. So when Moses went to the mountain, they lost connection and said, okay, what, what do we do now? We're going to make the golden calf or do whatever we need to do so somebody can take care of us. Hmm, that's good. I mean, you think about it, you take an animal and you put it in captivity for long enough, you let it out in the wild, it's, it's a terrifying place. Like, they, I don't have the skills for this. We've been, we've been slaves in Egypt. We don't have the skills. And so there's almost like a fear, an, a panic, uh, an insecurity maybe that's happening um, that I think seems very plausible. Like, that seems real. Yeah, Jackie. Hmm. Yeah. It can be, it can just feel very scary in a new environment with no structure and a lot of open. And now the person who gave it to us, Moses, is not here. And so we really feel like we need something to make us feel safe. We need something to make us feel stable. Something to worship. Um, okay. New question. So we call this idolatry. I think idolatry is very common, right? It's when we put something other than God in the place of God, right? It's the thing. We, we start to value things uh, in ways where our priorities are completely out of whack. Um, so can you think of like a contemporary example where Christians, you, <laughs> me, us, uh, whatever, React similarly to Israel? Yeah, Shelly. Right, and this, there's a similar parallel here, right? Because money is immediate. I can see it. I have a bank account. I know what, I, I can feel directly the fragility of that. Uh, and so what is right in front of us dictates or dominates our thoughts, our emotions, our time, just like it does Israel. 
right? Moses is gone. We're not sure what to do. God feels at distant. What's immediate? What can I get my eyes on? The statue, right? This thing right in front of me, what's immediate. So I think there, that, that's a true for a lot of us. And it can be true when I have a lot of money, it can become my idol. But it's also true when I don't have enough and I'm always thinking about it. Any other examples? I mean, I think like, um, I think sometimes like uh, gun ownership, like I picture the idea of like def protecting, defending, like the fear that drives me, like this is the thing that will keep me safe. This is what will protect society. So like I, I put it in place of where I think the role God might, should play, right? Like this is an example where we, we go to what's immediate, closest, or we can get our hands on it rather than thinking about it in terms of like trust, overcoming our fear in a different way. Yeah, Chris. Ooh, yeah, explain. I think that's true. <laughs> but, it, but you're going to get in the best kind of trouble. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 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 No, no, it becomes an idol because it's like, is this spirit led? Am I following and is my heart being shaped by God? Or is this just a way so I, I can get rid of my own shame? I can feel, yeah, I can get attention. I feel good. Uh, I have to battle it all the time. Like I have, to be, I, have to be rem I have to remind myself or be reminded to like check the motives. Because I fall into it all the time, right? That this, is, this has nothing to do with God. This just became about Joe. And that's like a, that's a significant problem. But I think that's, you're right to point that out, right? Yeah. 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 It's it's I'm a servant. I'm not like just I'm not the one doing this. Yeah, Steph. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. So if the, that might, maybe people don't like that. I, I'm going to affirm it though. So like biblical idolatry, like using the Bible as an idol, I think is very common in Christian circles. And what I mean is the, when I think of the Bible, I think the proper role is that the Bible is used as a way to connect me to God, to get me into relationship with God, to challenge or help. And but the Bible's not God. <laughs> Like I don't like so the like I don't worship the words of the Bible. I it's, it's used as a mechanism to connect me to the divine mystery, right? To to change and transform my heart. So you read it relationally, you read it interactively. You, but when we treat it like we collapse everything, like th this one verse, that's clearly the answer to that giant social problem or whatever. And it's like a conversation stopper. We use it as a weapon. We use it. I think this is a problematic, right? Literally, God becomes trapped into the pages of the Bible. That's a problem. God's a lot bigger than the pages of the Bible. 
So I, I agree with you. I think this is one way, because we can, but we can see the Bible. We can, we can read it and say, look, we can fight about it. And it's right here. It's not the mystery that is God. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jen, and then, yeah. Uh, Netflix. <laughs> no, yeah, so explain. After a long day, and you just want to find some, some peace and some solitude, and so you turn on Netflix as opposed to maybe turning to God. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes I think it's great, right? Like, I need to do this. I, uh, I need to relax. It's okay to relax. I need to zone out. But I also know the difference when I have difficult emotions that I don't want to think about, so I do it. And I, that, that, this is definitely my idol of choice, um, is, is television or movies or things, because then I just don't have to think about it. And, I, not only, and it keeps me from fully connecting to my family sometimes when maybe I should, to God for sure, and um, and it, it's an idol. It's just like this is what the role God should play. I think that's a really powerful one in my life for sure. Not that it's always wrong to watch TV, but I have to be conscious of it. Like, am I escaping, right? Like, I, I'm escaping the relationship with God I should have for the God that's like right here that's going to make me laugh or whatever. It's going to entertain me. Thank you for your participation. So um, we, we are Israel uh, and here's the challenge for your life. So this, as I, as I think about what I would want, how I would want to apply this, I think of it this way. Israel is experiencing the absence of God and Moses in their lives. I feel acutely at times in my life the absence of God, the distance of God, the silence of God. I feel like God's not doing enough I feel like alone in my prayer. I assume I'm not the only one who has these times, right? Like I'm just not connected. I'm disconnected for whatever reason. It, maybe it's Joe. Maybe it's just the way the cyclical nature of relationships, including ours with God. But how do I respond in those times when I feel acutely the absence of God? A fragile faith rejects its broken a resilient faith is able to like cling to the belief, right, that God still exists even though I don't feel them, although there's very little change or transformation. But an anti-fragile faith can take the times of distance to maybe move closer, to become more vulnerable, to, right, like I move towards God when I feel God's absence. Like, like this time of dry, desert spiritual experience can be a time of incredible growth, not just resilient, not just getting through it, growing through it. But am I willing to do that? Like, am I willing to try to cultivate a faith that even in the midst of the absence of God, I don't suddenly become impatient and get on Netflix or check my bank account or do the next good thing to make myself feel good about myself, but that I could really, in, in, in stillness and in quiet and in, like, in patience, do less open my heart even more to that kind of hurt or the pain where like, where are you, God? And when I've done that, I really feel like long-term, that connects me more to God. That, may, that like, the trust gets cultivated because I realize eventually you do show up. And so my challenge for us is to be less Israel and to be more anti-fragile in our faith, 
to remember, like Israel should remember the way God delivered them, to remember all the ways God's shown up in our lives, the way God delivered manna and water from our rock fields. They needed to remember and to slow down and to be patient. So my prayer for you in the midst of some of those who might feel distant from God is that you would be patient and you would be slow and you would find ways to open your heart even in even greater ways to what God might do in the future. Let's pray.